All right. That said, open your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Revelation. We're back in the book of Revelation this morning. And as we said in our introduction a couple of weeks ago, uh, we take, uh, we're studying the book because it is to be studied and to be understood. Uh, It's not intended to be a mystery that's impossible to figure out. That's not to say there aren't difficult passages. That's not to say that there aren't challenges to interpreting it. Uh, even starting with the means by which you choose to interpret it. You know, is it something that has already happened historically? Is it something that uh, has taken place already, or is it yet future? Different elements that we've spoken of in in, uh, introducing the book. And I do take the futurist view, by the way, just so you know. So if you want to run out screaming and saying, oh, this is going to get weird, now's your chance. Uh, Now, having said that, I don't take weird, fringy positions on things, okay? Okay. I think that the scriptures are intended to be understood and applied. And we look at the book of Revelation, if in fact it is speaking of things yet to come, which again, that's my perspective on it, then it's not supposed to freak us out and and we shouldn't be be taking it uh, in some odd way as we read through it. We want to understand it and we want to see the days in which we live as we prepare for the culmination of that book, which is the coming of Christ to establish his kingdom. And so I don't take a sensationalist view. I don't do those kinds of things. And, uh, and as we talk about the various points and as we um, make our way through the book, the intention, again, is not to whoop you all up, but rather to help us understand it. Because we want to, as we look at the events that happen around us in the days in which we live, days which I do, frankly, believe are leading very much now up to the return of Christ. And even prior to that, the rapture. I think it's important for us to have a good understanding of these things so that we can be encouraged, that we can be motivated to be about the Lord's business in the days that remain. Uh, We should never take the attitude that if Jesus could be coming at any minute, then I should just sit back. No, we should recognize that that means the time is short. We're going to be punching out soon and the time to work will be over. And so this should be a motivating kind of a thing to help us understand the place that we play in God's purposes uh, prior to Christ's return. So that being said, we've uh, actually gone through the first four verses in our introduction, so I'm going to try and make it a habit to not go back and review lots of things. So I'll just encourage you to watch the previous study so we can just sort of dive in because uh, I don't have a gift of brevity, and so this book could take a hundred years to get through. It's, it's, almost, it's almost certain that Jesus will come back prior <laughs> to us finishing. And, uh, and I, I, you know, maybe that's by design, I don't know, but, uh, but I, I don't tend to be short, so I'm going to try not to do a lot of time reviewing. So that being said, we're going to go ahead and turn our attention to Revelation chapter 1, uh, looking at verse 5. Now, again, John has begun to introduce the letter. He's uh, uh, verse 4. He said, Grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead or of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now we'll kind of pick it up here as we make our way through. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests uh, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Um, so there's this element of worship that begins to sort of emerge in the book. And this element of worship will continue to appear throughout the book of Revelation, throughout the Revelation, uh, with seemingly increasing intensity. Uh, the, the 
the, the praise itself becomes longer and it becomes even more fervent as some of these elements begin to unfold. And so worship and worship of Christ in particular is a key element in this book throughout. And after all, that makes perfect sense. Because the revelation is not just about all the stuff that we read about and uh, the judgments and the bowls and all those kinds of particular. It's uh, ultimately supposed to be, but did you know I was lip syncing this whole message? No. But uh, uh, at the heart of the book is the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? We are to see him clearly. And to see him, as we'll notice in a moment with John himself, that prods something, that prods worship. It evokes a sense of praise and worship of the Most High, of this one who is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, the one who rose from the dead. And, uh, and, and we'll read more about him as we go through. But it's not just so that we read about it. Ultimately, there is worship and praise that comes naturally as a response. And in, per, in particular, just to break that down for a moment, it's to him who loves us, present tense, who continues to love you and I. Uh, his love for us does not end. It knows no bounds. It has no end at all. And that is because he has freed us from our sin. Now, that's a past tense work. That's not something that is yet future. He has freed us from our sin. That finished work that took place at the cross is the basis and foundation by which we have right relationship with God, and that's what provokes worship. No longer do we stand before God uh, with shame and guilt and all of this, but rather those things have now been paid for, wiped clean and washed away by the blood of Christ on the cross at Calvary. And that's finished. There's nothing left to be done in that regard. It is finished. And so therefore we can enjoy the love of God as his children, as those who are redeemed. And he has made us a kingdom, priests in that kingdom. Some of your versions say a kingdom of priests and those kinds of things. The basic idea is simply that by being redeemed, in his love, we are now a kingdom, those who are priests. That's an interesting word for Gentiles like most of us, right? The idea that we are somehow now priests. What does a priest do? Well, two things, really. A priest represents the people to God. He brings the offerings. He brings the prayers. He does the things that ultimately bring the people before God. But he also does another thing. He represents God to the people. That twofold ministry is something that's now been given to you and I as believers. We are those who represent the people to God. We bring people before him in prayer. Uh, our fellowship is an act of praise to him. We come before the Lord in these ways. But we also have the responsibility of representing God to people. In other words, when we are redeemed, as redeemed people, God is both at work through us, but he's also at work in us. And these two things in concert ultimately paint a picture for the world to see that they might recognize that there is, in fact, a God in heaven who works among men and women and who ultimately has a purpose and plan leading ultimately to the redemption of those who would come to believe for his glory. When we demonstrate grace to one another, when we demonstrate the various nature and characteristics of God to people, that is ultimately so they will see him clearly. That's what a priest does. And this was something that was obvious of a priest. In the case of those actual priests in Israel, they wore garments that demonstrated their role, right? They had robes, they had things like this, they wore particular headwear and, and chest pieces and those kinds of things, and people knew that they were acting in the role of a priest. Well, you and I don't wear special clothes to demonstrate that we're priests and that kind of thing, but rather instead, 
the way that we act, the way that we treat one another, the way that we speak, these things demonstrate to the world outside the person of God that we're, that we're making known through who we are. Um, now, I've got to cheat because I could just walk to someone and say I'm a pastor. And then, oh, okay. Well, I don't do that, though. Well, for a number of reasons. Number one, because I don't want people to start acting weird around me. But um, so it's, it's actually a lot of fun when you say, oh, by the way, yeah, I pastor a church. They start thinking back everything they just said in the last five minutes. You know? And sometimes when I'm feeling particularly evil, I do that to people. But, but I don't typically tell people I'm a pastor. I don't open up with that because I don't want people to suddenly put on the face, you know, and act all religious. But hopefully over time in our interaction together, they begin to recognize that I'm a Christian, that I'm a follower of Jesus. And that begins to hopefully have an impact. And so that's something that we just are now as a kingdom, priests to God. And to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Glory, that idea of the recognition of God's excellence and majesty. Dominion speaks of strength and power. Let these things be his forever and ever. Amen. Yes, let it be so. Verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Again, the idea, let it be so. Well, the idea here of, uh, of him coming in the clouds is something that we don't only see in the book of Revelation. We actually, and if you turn with me uh, to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is sort of the revelation of the Old Testament. Uh, it's, it's kind of the premier apocalyptic writing in the Old Testament. Um, Speaking of last things, and in particular, just briefly, in verses 13 and 14, let me read the passage, where Daniel is given a vision, and in these, uh, in, in these night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. Now, Daniel has spoken kind of frequently in his, uh, in his prophecy. Daniel 2, chapter, uh, chapter 4, chapter 7, here we see it again. And of course, in the, uh, toward the end of the book, all of that he writes about the, the, the last days and the kingdoms that are to arise and the one who will emerge uh, as an antichrist as we know him in the New Testament. But Daniel speaks a lot about these events. But one thing that is key to understanding how things ultimately unfold is that at the end of all of the kingdoms of the world that take place, there is a singular kingdom that ultimately is established. It's a rock cut without hands, Daniel would say earlier in his prophecy, and it comes and it crushes at the feet of this progression of empires that rise up, and ultimately they all come crashing down. In particular, that last one comes crashing down, and this one, this mountain, this rock cut without hands, uh, is, an, is, is, uh, is an image of this kingdom that is everlasting. And it belongs to this one who is being described here, the Son of Man, this messianic term, the one who ultimately comes uh, representing mankind, establishing the kingdom of God, and establishing it forever. Okay, this is ultimately what we're reading about in the book of Revelation. This is ultimately what is coming to a crescendo. This is how things ultimately end up. But it wasn't just spoken of in the New Testament. I've mentioned before, and I'll no doubt mention many times uh, after this as well, that the idea of the kingdom that we pray for, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That breathtaking prayer that is so simply said and so often just sort of glossed over is actually a call 
for a massively radical transformation of every single thing on earth. Think about that next time you ask for that. We want it, right? Because we see the world around us and we say, Lord, please come quickly and fix this, change it, set up your kingdom, one where righteousness reigns. Every time we ask that, that's what we're asking for. Well, that kingdom that comes is led by this Son of Man, God in the flesh, Jesus when he returns. Um, this is what the end game is all about. And so as we make our way toward it, this is what is in view. I'm going to bring this back to uh, Revelation chapter 1. He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Now we see this in Matthew chapter uh, uh, Matthew chapter 20, uh, 24, we see this in Luke 21, we see uh, all these places in the New Testament where it speaks about him coming in the clouds. Uh, that is important because every eye will see him when he returns, which is one of the reasons why I take a futurist view of this. That hasn't happened yet. Um, there, are, there are those in Israel today, some of you know this, they are beginning to accept this one who uh, they see as their Messiah. He's been sort of hidden for a while, and now he's out. And there's the rabbis are starting to point to him as the Messiah. Now, what passage immediately tells us, besides this one, no fair, I already gave this one away. There's a passage that tells us that that guy's not the Messiah. The way he was presented is a clue to knowing that. Where was he all this time prior? It's kind of hidden, right? What did Jesus say about that? When they say he's in the hidden rooms and all those things, don't believe them. When he comes, it'll be like lightning across the sky. Every eye will see him. When he returns, you're not going to read about it in the paper the next day. You know, everybody will know. That's, that's a dramatic entrance. He's coming in the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Now that's a call back to Zechariah 12.10 where it speaks about those, uh, those who pierced, they mourn as one who mourns for an only son. The idea of the looking upon the one that they have pierced. Uh, it's not just that the Romans put him on the cross, but he was rejected initially by his own people, right? John says this in the opening words of his gospel. He came first to his own, but his own did not receive him. Well, when he returns... And I always want to make sure I make this case crystal clear. When he returns, he is returning, if for any reason, it's certainly at least for this reason. It is to come and to set up the kingdom that he has promised Israel. And so when they look upon the one whom they've pierced, it is likely at that point that what Paul says about all Israel being saved takes place. They acknowledge him. They recognize him, and they ultimately receive him in a national sense. doesn't mean every single Jew necessarily will. As a matter of fact, there are scriptures that seem to indicate that is a remnant of Israel that ultimately uh, is saved and enters into the millennial kingdom uh, that they were promised. But that being said, this promise of his coming ultimately is to fulfill that which has been promised to his chosen people all throughout the Old Testament, ultimately to Abraham first, but we see this promise confirmed throughout the Old Testament, and the millennial kingdom that we see so often spoken of in the Old Testament is ultimately a promise that will be fulfilled to his people, Israel. In other words, he has not cast them off forever. Why? Because these things that God has promised them are irrevocable. The election and calling of God, are, irre are, are uh, they're never ever going to be cast aside. 
they will be fulfilled. They're irrevocable. Um, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. It is interesting, the distinction between uh, verse 6 and verse 7, where there is worship and praise and an acknowledgement of what we are now in Christ, and we look forward to his coming. And then verse eight, where we, or verse 7, where we see that he's coming in the clouds and the world will wail and mourn because of this because they will recognize that they stand in judgment now, the one that they have been putting off, rejecting, and rebelling against all of this time. The day is coming. Actually, this is as good a point as any to mention this. At the end of the book of Revelation, uh, there is this call for Christ to come quickly, right? Why? So that everything that was spoken of prior may finally happen. The kingdom will be set up. We'll move into eternity, all those things that are yet to come. But all those things that are yet to come have been now spoken of in great detail. Let them come quickly. You and I have no reason to doubt that the things that we're going to read about in the book of Revelation will in fact come about, including the kingdom that Jesus will set up. Okay? This is a sure thing. John writes about it. It's in print. We have it in front of us. We can read it every day and, and learn more about it. It is going to come. We don't have to wonder if... We just wonder when, but it's a sure thing. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. We heard this earlier uh, in verse 4. Um, it's also interesting, too, that this is claimed not only by God the Father, but also by the Son as well. In Revelation chapter 21, 22, verse 13, I should say, Jesus refers to himself in these same terms, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And the idea of the first and the last, which Jesus will refer to himself as, as he speaks to the churches, the first and the last is like saying the Alpha and the Omega, the first letter, the last letter. The idea here is that he is the beginning and the end. Okay? In other words, he claims equality with God the Father. There are those that question this idea that somehow Jesus is less than that, not according to Jesus and not according to the Father, and not according to the Holy Spirit, or according to any of those who followed Jesus during that time. Uh, the claim to divinity is something that is well-established, biblically speaking, and was also foretold in the Old Testament. And so when Jesus comes on the scene making these claims and doing the things he did to verify it, when we come to the book of Revelation, we should have no problem understanding what he's talking about or who he is. Uh, he is, in fact, the Alpha and the Omega, just as the Father is as well. Now, verse 9, we'll continue through. You can tell I'm trying not to drag my heels in a lot, but I'm also trying not to just rush through things either. Um, so at the end, I'm always, as, as I've mentioned before, I'm going to try and make sure I leave about 10 or 15 minutes at the end in case there are questions about anything that we've been talking about. So let me continue on here. On uh, verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance... Uh, that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John, who now is an elderly man, uh, was banished, uh, tradition tells us, by Domitian, and he's now on the island of Patmos where he's forced to work the mines as an old man. But while, the, while those who banished him uh, put him there sort of under arrest, in fact, John recognizes that he's there for the word of God and the testimony of Christ. In particular, he would write this book there, this revelation there. This is where God would speak to him about these things and, as we'll see, sort of transport him to see the events that are coming. And so even though the world may have had a particular 
uh, reason for doing what they did to John, John recognized that God had a very different reason for putting him there at that time. Uh, he was likely a very solitary life as he worked in the mines. He was not allowed to just sort of have fun and build relationships when he was working, and, and it was very possible that he, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, uh, well, for starters, he's the last of the living apostles, right? All of his closest friends and, and compadres in ministry have since gone. Um, tradition does tell us that uh, after Domitian's passing, John was released and allowed to go to Ephesus where he finished out his days. But by and large now, as an old man, this is not the kind of life that you would choose for yourself, but this is where God ultimately used him to bring us the words that we're reading now. And he's on Patmos. Again, then, uh, uh, it's one of the small islands in between Turkey and Greece, there in that, in that uh, strait of water that goes between them. Um, and it says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and Thyatira, uh, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And when I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, uh, and on turn, or I, uh, then I turned, and on seeing, uh, uh, I'm sorry, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So as John is there... Uh, on the Lord's Day, now there is some dispute about whether the Lord's Day spoke of the day of the Lord that he will be writing about, or whether he was speaking of Sunday, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, like you and I are gathered today. It is likely that is what he meant, um, because of just the way the language is used there. But nonetheless, he will speak about the day of the Lord. But it was likely speaking to the idea that it was a Sunday that he was sitting there when he heard a voice like a trumpet. Now, we're going to see trumpets play a prominent role in the book of Revelation in terms of judgments, uh, where we see the idea of a trumpet show up elsewhere in the New Testament, and, play, and this, this word and phrase is used in places like 1 Thessalonians 4.16, uh, 1 Corinthians 15.52, and places like this where it speaks about trumpets, also in Revelation chapters 8 and 9. Uh, and, and chapter 4, as a matter of fact, when he hears a voice like a trumpet saying, come up here. And so we'll talk about trumpets as we make our way through. But right now, John hears a voice that sounds like a trumpet. A trumpet played a particular role in the society of that day. It heralded something. There was news. There was a, her was a heralding element to it. Other times it was used as a call for war. Uh, both could certainly be applied here uh, as he is heralding what is to come also he is about to bring judgment upon the earth that John is going to write about. And so both are appropriate. But he says to write uh, the things that he is going to hear in a book and present them ultimately to these seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Cyrus, uh, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And as we go through the letters, when we get to them next week, we're going to see that he makes uh, these letters are spoken to these churches in sort of that circuit going up to the northwest and around to the southeast. And so these are the churches that become the immediate focus of the things that Jesus is going to say. And as we said last time, that is the primary first focus of what is being said. There are seven churches there full of believers whom Jesus has a message for. 
And then we'll talk about what other things we may learn from these things as well. But this is where the letter is ultimately going. So John is being commissioned to write these things. Now, the things that he's going to write are likely the things that Daniel was told were going to be shut up until the end. In Daniel chapter 12, Daniel is asking about the visions that he's seen, and he's told by an angel that these things are actually going to be shut up until the time of the end or closed away until the time of the end. But John is likely now recording these things that Daniel was not given to record back in those days. And as John goes through all these things, and as he begins to give description to them, as he begins to write them, uh, they are truly breathtaking in scope. And so that's why we'll take our time to kind of examine them. But um, this voice like a trumpet, also like the roar of many waters, uh, the description that is given of Jesus in these words, his hair is white and brilliant. Uh, the clothes, a white garment, a golden, uh, not so much a sash, but it's like a girdle, like a, a top piece uh, over his waist in that. Uh, his feet like burnished bronze, uh, tried bronze. Uh, his eyes like fire, his voice like a trumpet and like these mighty waters. We're seeing Jesus now in his glory. This is among the best description that we have of Jesus in all the New Testament. Uh, we have glimpses in the Old Testament where it talks about uh, prophetically the tearing out of his beard and those kinds of things. We get a little bit of his, his appearance was un, not anything that would attract you and that kind of thing. But here we see Jesus described in his glory. And it's not terribly unlike the vision that John saw of Jesus back in the Transfiguration. Uh, when you put together the accounts in Matthew and Mark and when they talk about this uh, he was whiter than you could launder any clothes and stuff like this. It was, uh, it was, he was glorious in his appearance. Well, here we have an even further description. Um, that whiteness of hair and of garment and everything speaks of a purity and, and, uh, and no spot or darkness at all. It's just pure. The eyes like fire. Uh, eyes that, you know, fire tends to have this refining power to it, uh, this cleansing power to it. Um, the brass, uh, the bronze of his feet in that, that brass or slash bronze is often an, uh, an item that is used to symbolize judgment and that kind of thing in the Old Testament. Um, when we see Jesus presented this way, we see him in his glory. We see, we see him in a way that is particularly intriguing considering what he's about to do. Not just in terms of everything that's going to come in the length of the book, but even as it begins by looking at the churches. He looks at the churches as he dwells within the lampstands and that. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But as he's there, he is prepared now to speak to his churches with this majestic voice, with these eyes that can see through all of their issues and, and ultimately seek to bring refinement and purify them and these kinds of things. We'll see in a moment how John falls as dead when he sees him, um, which is fascinating to me because John knew Jesus. This is the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? One of his closest friends, one who was in sort of the inner circle of the inner circle of those who followed him. And now he sees Jesus as he truly is, as he only caught a glimpse of him in his earthly ministry. Now here he is, not only in his presence, but on his home turf, as it were, in, in the glory of heaven and, and all of this. Uh, I, I, I think it is important for us to periodically sort of put ourselves in their shoes and imagine what you might 
the, the condition you might find yourself in, in the presence of this one. Well, John sees this magnificent vision, and as he goes on here in verse 17, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not. Let's just stop there for a minute. Fear not. The same hand that is going to bring judgment on a wicked, rebellious world brings tremendous comfort to the beloved, to the redeemed. In the presence of such majesty and glory, the natural response is to fall on your face. Isaiah had a similar experience, right? In Isaiah 6, saw the glory of the Lord, the heavens were opened, he saw the train of his robe and the temple and everything, and he fell on his face as dead. There, <laughs> there's a tragic uh, understating of the character, nature, person of Christ in our Western Christianity, isn't there? Um, so much so that in a lot of churches you've got to have smoke machines and crazy stuff to sort of get you primed up to meet with God as if you weren't impressive enough. Uh, no preacher is impressive enough, and so our job is to sort of get out of the way so that you might see him, you know what I mean? Here in Jesus' presence, there is no, there's no anything. It's just him and the Lord, and he just is broken. We need more of that in our current understanding and relation with God. On the one hand, yes, absolutely. Like Jesus said, don't be afraid. We don't have to be scared in Jesus' presence. But in no way is John's reverential awe and holy fear inappropriate. Um, God's not the big guy upstairs. Jesus isn't your bro. You know what I mean? That's... He's your friend. He loves you with an everlasting love. He's invited you to come. The veil was rent in the temple from top to bottom. God has invited us to come boldly, confidently, before the throne of grace to obtain mercy in our time of need, the scriptures tell us. Jesus said, pray. When you're praying to the Father, pray, our Father, Abba. You know, intimate, close, personal term. But we ought never see that as an invitation to sort of put ourselves on anything remotely resembling even footing with the one that we're coming before. And we're reminded of that in a passage like this. John just falls down. He just can't even stand before him. And Jesus says, fear not. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Now this, by the way, is why we don't have to be afraid. As we alluded to before, the finished work of Christ is finished, and by faith in him, you are now right before God. So you don't have to be afraid to go into the presence of God now. It's not an arrogant thing to say that, okay, the veil of the temple was rent, we can now go into the holy place. It sounds arrogant, because if we do it on our own merits, it's absolutely the most ridiculously arrogant and foolhardy thing in the world. But on the merits of Christ, we now have access. And so therefore, we don't have to be afraid. There's an interesting uh, uh, passage in the Old Testament where David, man after God's own heart, right, loves the Lord, a worshiper at heart, and he wants to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. And as he's bringing it back, he has it put on a cart, and they're just bringing it along. And if you're from, you know, matter of fact, you don't have to be from Chicago anymore. I'm, I'm driving into downtown Franklin now, and there's potholes like the size of craters now, you know. 
you know. But so they hit one of these with the ark on a cart. They just basically hit a rock or something causes the ark to tumble. And the ark begins to sort of slide off the cart. And this guy named Uzzah, who's uh, uh, one of the sons of Korah, essentially, a Kohathite, he's one of these folks that understands how the, temp- how the uh, ark is supposed to be transported and how you don't do the very thing that out of a just simple reaction he does. He touches the ark in order to steady it. And God strikes him. It says that David was scared of God at that point. The word for fear there speaks of being scared. And the ark, I think, was at Obed-Edom's house, I think, for a period of time there. It sits there for a while. David goes back and he realizes the error of his ways and the way that it was being transported was supposed to be carried on poles. It was supposed to be carried by priests. It was supposed to be transported a certain kind of a way. So finally he comes to this. During this time, he is afraid of God. His relationship with God has changed out of his fear. But then he realizes he was the one in error. And he goes and he brings the proper people and they transport it the proper way and they get back. And once again, David has a holy reverential fear, but he's not afraid anymore. Those two kinds of fear can coexist at the same time. A reverence and a respect, a holy fear for God. And yet the idea of not being scared of him. You know, he's not a cosmic bully in the sky looking to strike us down. Rather, he's a loving father. But that relationship is intact because of what Jesus did. There was a price to be paid for our rebellion and sin. And short of that being paid, we have no right to consider friendship with God something attainable. But because it's finished, he has now offered it and opened it to us. Unworthy as we are. It's like the song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me right? He understood. So John sees this, falls down. Jesus says, fear not. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one, the one who conquered death. And who, by the way, as we read the rest of the book, is now here to put the finishing touches on restoring and redeeming everything that has yet to be restored and redeemed. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I have the keys. Jesus, during his ministry, said all authority has been given by the Father to him. Okay? So we talk about death and Hades. Jesus is the Lord over all things, and he holds the keys to these things. He conquered death, right? We understand that. What about Hades? What's this all about? Well, Hades, or the abode of the dead, as we often think about it, is not hell, by the way. Uh, Hades is sort of a waiting place. We see this in places like Luke 16, where Jesus tells a story. And I would, I would make the argument it's not a parable. I think it's an account, a story, of a rich man and a man named Lazarus. Lazarus was poor, a beggar, and he was at the rich man's table just begging for scraps. Presumably the rich man sort of just blew them off because they both end up passing away and they find themselves in two different places in Hades. Lazarus is on the one side alongside of Abraham and then there's this chasm, this gulf between that place and the other side which is where the rich man is. And the rich man's in tremendous torment but Lazarus was at peace, at rest at Abraham's side. And the rich man cries out, Father Abraham, let you know, Lazarus, dip his finger in water and just touch it to my tongue for all the suffering I'm experiencing. 
And Abraham says, there's a chasm between us that can't be crossed. Can't go to your side. Well, then send Lazarus back from the dead so that he might warn my brothers so that they might avoid the same fate that I'm experiencing. And Abraham says, even if someone were sent back from the dead, they wouldn't believe. So we learn a lot of things from this. First off, it's not a parable because people aren't named in parables. And secondly, parables teach other lessons. The story just tells the lesson. And we learn a lot from it. First off, after we die, we're conscious. We're aware. Some are at peace and at rest. Others are in torment. But it's not the final torment. At the end of the book of Revelation, after the final judgment, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. This is the final resting place. The resting place is a completely inappropriate term. It's the final destination of those who have rebelled and resisted and rejected Christ. Jesus has the key to these things. And I make all this point to say this. Satan is not ruling in hell. That's not his domain. It's not the place of HQ for Satan. It's where he's going to end up. In fact, Jesus would say during the Gospels that hell was created for the devil and his angels. This is the place where ultimate justice finally is served. And the one who has ultimately uh, brought sin into the world and has done so much to propagate it will ultimately pay the ultimate price. Jesus has the key to these things. In other words, he has all authority. He is truly the Lord. And so he lays these things out for John at their encounter here at the beginning. And in concert with that, he tells him to write letters to these churches or to dictate these letters to the churches, uh, ultimately, that, that Jesus will dictate. And he says, therefore, in verse 19... Uh, write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. For the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, this brings up a good point. When we see things in the scripture that are idiomatic, they're, 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 they're pictures of things that represent something else. Oftentimes, we can find the explanation to what those things are meant to, be, to mean, either immediately nearby in the Scripture themselves that we're reading the passage, or somewhere else in the Scripture. Okay? In other words, very little is left for us to try and scratch our heads and say, what does this mean? For example, um, Revelation 12. What's Revelation 12 about? All you Revelation nuts. The woman, right? What does she look like? She's got the sun, moon, and stars around her. Well, I grew up Roman Catholic, and in that theology, that was the church, or that was Mary. No. We see that very image in Genesis 37. It's the vision that Joseph had of Jacob, his mother, and his brothers. And Jacob interprets it. Joseph has this dream and he tells him about it. And Jacob says, wait a minute, are your mother and I going to bow down in front of you just like your brothers? They understand what the thing is. So what is the woman in, in Revelation 12? It's Israel who gives birth to Messiah and then is chased off into the wilderness where she ultimately is chased down by the dragon and such. If you misunderstand that, some really terrible things can come out of your theology. We'll talk more about it when we get there. But that image... We understand it because it shows up somewhere else. 
We don't have to just sort of make up what things are. We can actually find, search the scriptures to figure out what these things mean. And in doing so, we develop a correct understanding of what the passage is intended ultimately to tell us. For example, when we see the lampstands, they represent what? The churches, right? The seven lampstands, or what may be in view here could be either seven individual lampstands, or it could speak of the seven-branched menorah, which is probably what's in view, but it could be either way. Uh, with Jesus standing before it or behind it, or in the midst of it, if it's seven individual uh, candle stands. Another thing about the candle stands is that in those days, you didn't plug them in, Right? They were illuminated by filling them with oil, having a wick in it, and then the oil ultimately sustained it. Well, what is oil oftentimes a type of in Scripture? Holy Spirit, right? And so, you know, when we talk about the churches here, we have a people that the Holy Spirit is present with, but even really what's at the heart of this ultimate description is that the stars in Jesus' right hand, or the angels to the churches as he calls them, speaks of the idea that he is in control of his church. He is sovereign over it. He is the Lord of it. The angels that are represented by the stars, the word angelos there, can, and most often does mean angels like you would think of an angel as a, an angelic being. But it also is used of a messenger, like John the Baptist, for example. When he's called a messenger there in the beginning of the gospel, that word there is angelos. He's a messenger. And so what is in view here could be one of two things. There could, in fact, be actual angelic beings that somehow are in connection with these seven churches, and Jesus is speaking of them as, as having some kind of a, a role in, in guiding these churches. Or, and I tend to take this view, is that the messengers of the churches are their pastors. And these letters are written to the leaders of those churches with the intent that they would hear the message that Jesus has for them and that they would apply those things. Um, Either explanation is valid based on the text, but it would just seem to me that it's not unreasonable to assume that what's in view there is the leader of those churches, the messenger to those churches. Uh, much in the role that, as I teach you guys, those pastors there, if, if Jesus had a letter directly for them, much like we break open the word and we try to understand it, Jesus actually specifically had a message for those churches, and it was for the leaders to convey those things. But at the heart of the seven candle stands, in his, with, with those stars, the leadership, the angels, the messengers in his hand, Jesus is the Lord of his church. And that's an important thing for us to realize. Because as we look at the churches, they are going to speak to a number of different possible things. As we, to start with, let me reiterate. When we talk about the seven churches, these are seven uh, literal churches around Asia Minor, or Turkey as we would think of it today, that part of the world. And these churches were given a message specifically from Jesus. That's the first and foremost understanding of those passages. However, it's also important for us to recognize that there are other things that we can glean from those passages. Uh, one of them is that it's generally been held that those seven letters, because the number is seven churches, he specifically chose seven churches to speak to, it may be that seven, which often speaks in, and by the way, I'm not into numerology or any of that kind of stuff but we do see a consistent use of certain numbers in certain ways in Scripture, and that can be somewhat instructive. When we see the number seven, it tends to have uh, most often a connection with the idea of completion or perfection in terms of being full or complete. And so it may be that in speaking to these seven churches, Jesus is speaking to the entire church on the various topics that he speaks to. 
And we can certainly glean things in some respect that way. Uh, another way, do I have these up here, by the way? I do. Do I? I do, yeah. So uh, I'll go in the order that I put on there. Uh, but another uh, application could be that it could speak specifically to a particular fellowship's condition spiritually. Okay? Um, some churches, Jesus has correction. A couple of churches, he doesn't. And so whatever he says to those churches may be speaking of the condition of that kind of church even today. A church can be in one of these several conditions, spiritually speaking. That can also be true personally. Each of these letters can have a personal application in terms of the kinds of things Jesus addresses. For example, we get to Ephesus, they've left their first love, the idea of a backslide, the idea of no longer walking uh, with the Lord, but still doing the stuff, but not really motivated by a love for him anymore. Now, that is a lesson any of us can learn from, right? Um, and, and those kinds of things. We can also learn the idea, and, and this last one, by the way, is often pointed to as well, although, I'll be honest with you, in my mind, I find it to be the most subjective of, of, of the possible interpretations, and that is that it speaks to specific church ages. It could be. I'm not saying it doesn't. But it could be that in those seven letters, Jesus is speaking to a progression of uh, ages of the church since that time leading up to his return. Um, of course, we all want to be the Church of Philadelphia in that regard, right? The faithful, all that kind of thing. So it may be, and oftentimes... Uh, things are pointed to in church history that seem to line up with, with those churches in the order they're presented. That could be. I'm not, I'm not saying that couldn't be. But when I look at the evidence to that, sometimes I'm left sort of like, well, okay, that might be a little contrived. I don't know, but maybe. But in terms of personal applications, clearly there's a message in all of these letters that at one point or another in our own Christian walk, we may find ourselves in sort of a place like that church. And there's a message to us in those things. But all of that said, we understand that when we look at the seven letters to seven churches, we have to first start with the fact that Jesus was speaking to those believers first. In other words, it's not spiritual. Uh, in other words, it's not, it's not a metaphorical thing that is in view here. There are seven literal churches in seven literal cities with seven literal pastors that Jesus had something to say to. And so we want to understand that. One last thing I'll do before we open it up for questions is to point to verse 19 one more time before we wrap today. Jesus tells John to write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Now, this has, I think, well been pointed out to be a very clear threefold division of the book. Okay? The things that are, right? Or the things you have seen, I should say, first. Those things leading up to this point that John has seen. The things that uh, are the churches. He's going to see those things, write them down. It's for those churches in that day. And as we said, potentially with messages for us as well, but primarily those churches. And the things that are come to come after. The rest of the book of Revelation. Essentially up to verse 20 of chapter 22, because verse 21 gives us kind of an epilogue to the book. But essentially the rest of the book of Revelation is what is to come. And so we have three nice, neat divisions in the book that help us understand sort of the parts of the book. And that's how it'll break down, we'll see. So, um, so that being said, I'm going to stop there. And I want you to know that I enter into this part of our times every Sunday morning with fear and trepidation. <laughs> Last time I did this, someone had some really tough questions. But 
Um, does anyone have any questions, hopefully about what we're talking about so far? Preferably on the subject, but whatever's on your mind, I guess. Trust me, if you raise your hand, somebody will follow you up. Wow, really? Okay. All right, if no one's got one, we'll just go ahead and wrap. Okay, praise the Lord. Wow, y'all let me off easy that time. Well, let's pray, and then we're going to go ahead and worship, and, uh, and then we'll sing happy birthday as well to uh, our, our uh, April birthdays and have some cake. Father, we're thankful for your word, and uh, in a way, especially this word. You're, uh, you know, it says in the early verses that there's a blessing that comes with hearing and applying those things that uh, are here in this book. And so we just pray that, Father, as we make our way through the, this revelation, that we would learn the, that which you want us to understand and know, that we'd be prepared for what's coming down the road, and that most of all, we would be just absolutely thrilled at the, at the prospect, the knowledge, that one day we'll be in your kingdom. Uh, Lord, this world that we're in, in so many ways, is so deeply troubling on so many levels. Um, and there's not a person in this world who's got an answer to it, except for you. And so we thank you that you are here with us. Lord Jesus, leading us and guiding us, that you're the Lord of your church. At the end of the day, it's your church. And so guide us and lead us. Help us to understand the part that we play in your unfolding uh, plan for the ages that ultimately culminates in your establishing your throne and your kingdom there in Jerusalem. We thank you that we're going to be able to be alongside of you in that time. We thank you that we don't have to be afraid. We thank you that our sins are washed away and that we're free now and forgiven. We thank you for the hope that you bring us in the fulfilling of the things that you have spoken of throughout the ages. We thank you that you've grafted us onto a vine connected to those chosen people that you have never ceased to love. And you've now counted us alongside to receive so many beautiful, rich blessings. We thank you, Father, that eternity is going to be a time where, and even the kingdom, will be a time where all of our concerns and fears will all wash away. Father, we just pray that you would fortify our hearts, that you'd encourage us, that you'd guide our steps and help us to walk with you with intention, with knowledge and understanding, with faith, with expectation. Thank you, Father. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name.